Welcome to the Symposium of the Lotus Eaters. Today we're joined by Bo and Carl. Hello. And we're going to talk about the essential Machiavelli. We're going to have uh, two parts for this. And we're going to talk about the text that is um, considered to be Machiavelli's best. And also the text that is considered to be where he, expo he exposes the idea as that he really helped. Mm. Because a lot of people think that in The Prince he is sort of a bit more scheming. Well, he's pro-Machiavellianism pro in yeah. The Prince, which is... I, I always thought that Machiavelli got a pretty rough deal, to be honest, because just as my opinion of Machiavelli is he lived in very chaotic and turbulent times. He was a diplomat. He was imprisoned. He was tortured. He went through the ringer. He saw the reality of politics firsthand, and he was also a scholar. And so after studying Livy and obviously various other things, he looked at him and said, right, okay, what do you need to do to win? What do you need to do to be successful, uh, regardless of the morality of, this, yeah. of the thing? And of course, this got him stigmatized in his own day, but no one could say that he was wrong because he's not wrong. And there are lots of good examples as to why he's not wrong, which he gives, in fact, in, in all of his works. And so there's, I mean, he's the sort of founder of what we call political realism for a reason. But I, I never thought of him as a bad person. I always saw this as a means to an end for him being essentially a patriot saying, you know, it's obviously, ideally, he would like a strong republic, but given who he was dealing with, the prince was just geared towards an autocratic prince. So it, I, I, I don't, I think he's unfairly maligned, to be honest. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that uh, he's most famous for the prince when this book, his discourses on Livy, is uh, more interesting to me. Um, as comments, we did a book club on the prince, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Quite a while ago. It's still out there if anyone wants to <laughs> click back through the earlier library and find that. Uh, but yeah, that was specifically, as I know you know, and you, Carl, <laughs> that was specifically f meant for uh, Lorenzo, Lorenzo Magnificent de Medici. That was to say, this is what I think you should do. It wasn't necessarily quite clearly what Machiavelli thought was the best thing. It's just what he thought Lorenzo would want to hear, kind of. Even that's a little bit low resolution. But anyway, in this book, it, there's just much more to it. It's much more nuanced. Um, and he talks, like in, very much like in The Prince, he talks all about <clears throat> the, the various benefits and defects of a, a monarchy or, or a principality, an, an autocracy, whatever you want to say, and republics. So it's really an, <clears throat> an extended... Uh, critique of republicanism. Um, so I don't know if you want me to say a few words about Livy and ancient Rome, but you go I, ahead. I, I you go we'll, first. We'll take. We'll right, Sarah, get I'm getting ahead of you. Yeah. So what I want to say is that um, you said we are going to talk about discourses on Livy, and this is a very, it's a famous book, and he dedicated it to his friends. He didn't dedicate it to Lorenzo de Medici, and uh, he says in the very preface that he wants to basically go back to antiquity in order to care for the future, in a sense. Because he says that basically lots of people, they claim, claim to love antiquity, they buy pieces of ancient statues, they spend fortunes to do so, but they sort of think that the spirit of the ancients is dead. But he wants to say that it is not dead and it can be used 
to give us answers for problems that are contemporary. And that is essentially what he tries to do with his text. He wants to say, let's not look at history just as you know, a, a way to pass our time and learn about the past. Let us also look at history in order to extract lessons from what to do and what not to do. Isn't that the classic Renaissance thing? Can you think yes. of anything more Renaissance <laughs> than that? Yes. I mean, Renaissance means rebirth, isn't it? The rebirth of classicism, that the, the medieval mind is discovering the ancient world anew and using it, if anything, actually trying to build upon it, uh, trying to make their world better. I mean, much of what Machiavelli is doing in both The Prince and Livy uh, is essentially just examining what the Romans did and what choices they made and which choices were prudent, which choices were foolish. And he's quite clear about this. He says, look, they shouldn't have done this. They should have done this. This is what the result of that was. And this is just extracting lessons for the, the people of his own time. It's, it's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. And he's just doing it in a very cold way. Because yeah. uh, the, the, for anyone who doesn't know, Machiavelli, The, the Prince, and other works, there's, there's a whole sort of genre of uh, books at this time that are instruction manuals essentially for political people who for, for young men in the nobility and machiavelli's stood out because it was essentially evil uh, and most of them were deeply christian and moralizing and you know love thy enemy forgive thy foes all that sort of thing and machiavelli was like no kill them all <laughs> secure your power you know rout your enemies blah 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 and so it it, it it's not christian yes but it is correct and prudent uh, the advice that I think he gives. I must say he's explicitly anti-Christian in discourses yeah. on Livy, and he says that basically the Catholic Church of his time was responsible for what he perceived to be a kind of cowardice of uh, contemporary Ita Italians. Yes. And he says very, he puts it very succinctly that Christianity makes people more prone to withstand and endure evil than to avenge it. But he's not against religion because he thinks that basically founding a kingdom or a republic is incredibly important. Yeah. And he was saying that in the early period when Rome was a kingdom, Numa, he says, was much, he benefited Rome much more than Romulus did because he gave it religion. Hmm. So he's not against religion. He's against Christianity. And he thought that basically Christianity leads people to be in the world but not of the world yeah. as as the saying goes but he thinks that that's a bad thing he does not think that this is a virtue i mean he explicitly says that it's easier to make a warlike people religious than a religious people warlike yeah. right that's that's like his you know so um i i i i'm I, i'm a bit of a machiavelli defender to be honest because I, I i do think the sort of realistic <laughs> rather than idealistic view is is more prudent i would agree with you that i don't think he's a bad person yeah, no, I don't think he was uh, evil at all. Because his ultimate, it's much clearer in The Prince, but his ultimate goal is to sort of minimise human misery. Yeah. And so if that means uh, murdering a whole dynasty of a family, but that would mean that ultimately there might be way less human misery. That might avoid a, a civil war where many, 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 many more thousands of people will die. So it's actually yeah. the sort of morally or ethically correct thing to do, to do something extremely violent or something like that, or something that seems extremely cynical. It's actually <laughs> the, the nicest thing to do. And just quickly to say, certainly no, no, no. Christianity, at least in his day, 
in Italy, in central Italy, um, there's there's the sort of endless feuds between the Florentines and the papal states in Rome. Um, and, yeah, the idea of turning the other cheek or loving thy enemy yes. and all that sort of thing is actually makes for more human misery in the long run, or can do, potentially. Yeah, because what, what he's um, saying is that there yeah. are, you, you can have all of the high-minded ideals that you want, but there are questions of power that go unresolved right. that remain in tension, whether you like it or not. And, I mean, for example, in, in The Prince, the, the, one, of the one, one of the dictums that particularly offensive to the medieval mind and the modern mind is look if you take over a new uh, kingdom you've got to root out the family of the old prince and just exterminate them and everyone's like oh my god that's horrific but it's like as you say no if you don't you will have a civil war because the portions of the kingdom who are not happy with your conquest will rally around their sons or grandsons and then they will come and attack you, and you will you will find yourself in a big fight. And this this happens all the time. I mean, this is what the princes in the tower were. This whether they liked it or not, this was the you know Machiavelli's dictum: you've got to get rid of the the sons of the the previous prince. It's just the way that feudal politics works because it's so familial and it, it's alien to the democratic mind. But in his day, that was just how things were done and had to be done. Let me just say one thing. I remember one passage from the prince where he was talking about a governor that was in uh, that I think Cesar Borgia put a governor somewhere to do the dirty work yeah and the people and the whole resentment was deflected yeah. towards that uh, yeah. I don't remember his name and then uh, Cesar Borgia just decapitated him and everyone was yeah. ecstatic and <laughs> loved it's, it's kind of like the scapegoat you know the, the yes. sins go on to that guy and then you kill yes. that guy and oh now you're the saviour even though he did exactly but, what he wanted but I think that this is I, I find that repugnant to tell you the truth well yeah it's but, evil <laughs> but, but there's a kind of wisdom a descriptive wisdom in yeah. it because I think that very frequently lots of people get uh, starstruck when it comes to hierarchy mm. but, uh, but uh, we see especially in let's say conventional you know huge businesses there's a structure, and almost everyone loves the the people on top because they don't interact on a daily basis with them, and they they hate their immediate supervisor. Yeah, yeah we yeah, get a lot see. from that in in yeah. conventional businesses. Oh, yeah. And also, it's the um, it's also with the politics, and they say, and he says in the Prince, I think, that people are much more prone to hate the the person they see yeah. and the person they don't see. Oh, yeah. They don't mind if they don't see someone, a great king mm. in the distance who they don't interact with on an everyday. They mind about the person they interact with on a daily basis. Yeah, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. That's quite often true, isn't it? Oh, it's totally true. really often true. But also the distance creates mystique because mm. the lack of information that you have about the king, you have to fill in with your own imagination. And so you fill it in with what you would like them to be because people are just that way inclined. Yeah. And this is why, uh, I mean, Queen Elizabeth held the mystique that she had because she actually didn't do that much in public. You didn't hear her speaking that often. And when you did, it was very stage managed. It was a, a prepared script that she would read out. And so you didn't get to see her snapping at her kids when she was angry with them or something like that, right? You know, so, it, it, and this this builds up a mystique around the person because the less you know, the better you think of someone. Yes. I think we should talk about the commonalities between the prince uh, and the discourses on Livy mm. because most of our discussion is going to be focused on the differences. But let yeah. us get on the commonalities first. 
I think that the essential commonality is Machiavellianism. And what I mean by that... <laughs> surprise. That, yeah, surprise, surprise. No, but there, there, it's a bit more specific yeah. because there's a concept called virtue that he mentions in The Prince and it was very much talked in his day that is not exactly the traditional concept of virtue, but it was more like civic virtue. Yeah. And uh, he was saying that traditional morality, the traditional cardinal virtues, uh, ever since, let's say, the, the ancient Greeks, pre-Plato, that are justice, courage, wisdom, and temperance, they don't always get you the good results. And he fo focuses especially on justice. It's justice that he has a beef with. It is. Um, he, it, it's justice that he thinks that it will lead you to it, it will lead you to problems and to circumstances where you cannot so give solutions to your problems. And of course, then he also had issues with the virtues that were added in the cardinal virtues from Christians, yeah. like faith and other stuff. If I could say just a quick word about virtue. <laughs> yeah. um, it's one of those things, if you do uh, <clears throat> an undergrad in ancient history, yes. as I did, or classical civilizations, at some point it's going to come up and the lecturer will probably spend 20 minutes talking about just that word, or more even. It's whole essays. You might be invited to write an essay just about that one word. Um, and it's sort of, it's a little bit difficult and it definitely doesn't mean virtue yes. in 21st century English. Yeah. If anything, it seems like, well, scholars and trans, um, uh, linguists argue over exactly what it means, but mm. it seems that virtue may mean something a bit more like manliness. Yeah. But l lots and lots of things that come along with that are things like courage and justice and loyalty and and uh, honesty and all sorts of other things that we would, in our modern parlance, just call virtuous. Yes. So it's not, just to say, it's just not as simple as virtue. But you, you um, seem to be implying that it's not contained necessarily just within the person, though, right? It's it's in relation to your position as a citizen and yes. participant yeah. in civic life. Mm, mm. So it's, because, it's, I mean, uh, a, lo a lot of what we call virtue really can just be contained within the individual, right? He does good things and that's all we need to know. But this seems to be an extended thing into how does he act in the assembly? How does he act as a judge or, you know, when he's got office and things like this, right? And I may add, it's um, also how we relate to the common good. Hmm. From, from my reading, it, it may be mistaken, but from my reading, I think that what Machiavelli means by it is the tendency to promote the common good at the expense of your own good, which could be interpreted as manliness in, in that context. What do you think of this? I, in, I may be in, wrong, but no, no. what do you think? In like early Roman, particularly early Roman republicanism, hmm. um, one of the main things that sort of gave you virtue yeah. would be what we would describe as patriotism, yes. I suppose. The idea that you would put the good of your polity, your city, your republic, you'd put that above your own life. And the Romans have got um, loads of, uh, I, I, I won't say mythical examples of this, because I think a lot of them probably <laughs> are mythical. Like the, the chap who's holding back, uh, is it the Etruscans, by holding his hand in the fire, and uh, things like this. Um, yeah, or just the example of the early legions, mm. uh, just the, the wars of expansion in Italy, you know, and <clears throat> I mean, the Samnite Wars, and the, the wars with the Etruscans, all sorts of things, yeah. Um, that uh, that kind of 
obviously almost by default you'd throw yourself uh into the in, into death yeah. to protect your city yeah um it would be the most unmanly thing not to it would be you would have no virtue if you didn't yeah uh, and and we also discussed the dream of Scipio when we were talking about Cicero. And towards the end, basically, he uh, he says that there's a special place in heaven for patriots. Mm, mm, wow. that, that's the whole meaning of, of the dream of Scipio, the way I, I see it. Yeah. Because another thing to mention that I think is worth saying straight away is that Livy himself was um, completely uh, contemporaneous with Augustus. Yes. They pretty much lived and died within a couple, two or three years of each other. So it's pretty much exactly that. Which is the death of the Republic. Yeah. So Livy is looking back, uh, uh, to his mind, must have been or was some sort of earlier golden age of when the Republic used to work, yeah. <clears throat> um, basically. Um, and so now Machiavelli, another layer on top yeah. of that, he's looking back at Livy looking back Yes. You, you see? Uh, yeah. So there's a few interesting layers looking of it. Looking back and, to someone looking back. Yeah. 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 Well, just quickly to say, as you already sort of touched on, Machiavelli himself lived through extremely tumultuous times yes. and uh, lived through Florence having a republic, uh, overthrowing uh, a, a, a sort of a quite, a quite bad oligarchy, the Medici yeah. family, having a republic for a while and then that being overthrown and so on. So an extreme roller coaster politically yes. for Machiavelli in his life. Um, so it's sort of great that of anyone he looks back at Livy, yes. looking back at some sort of perfect republic, whilst he himself laments because Machiavelli loved the Florentine Republic. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He was a member of a, a senior member of it, and so he, he has... wished that would come back. And he has written a um, book, The History of Florence. I think it was the last book that he was involved in. He, re uh, he wrote The Prince, The Discourses on Livy, The Art of War. And uh, the other major text was uh, The History of, the of Florence. Mm. One thing to note here. So I think that for Machiavelli, it's not so much controversial to look back to someone looking back because... He is not a, what we would nowadays call a historicist, someone who thinks that we changed by the times. It seems to me that another common feature that Discourses on Livy has with, with uh, the prince is the assumption of a fixed human nature hmm. or of a human nature that is to a very large extent fixed. And it is so fixed that we can basically extract lessons from history and from all everything else that has happened for the future because... There, there's nothing else we can do. I, I wouldn't call it human nature. Uh, I would call it the dynamics of power. Okay. Um, because I think I think that's what he's really appealing to. Because I think he he accepts that the Christians in his own time were not like the pagan Romans in Livy's time. And I think what he's saying is, even even though these people are different, they are faced with the same dilemmas, and they are f forced to make the same choices. And the Romans have luckily for us, already made a bunch of these choices and already we can see the consequences of those choices. So really what we're talking about is how the mechanisms of power interact and what happens when something yeah. pushes on something else. Yeah. You know? I, th I think you're right. And I think I should qualify my initial statement as saying that he, when he posits a fixed human nature, it seems to me that he posits fixed 
propensities, mm. such as the a desire <clears throat> for power. Yeah, yeah. And a desire to minimize threats. Mm. That's different with what people do and how they act, because yeah. it's the difference between power and its exercise. Yeah. We all have potential that is unexercised. But the power and potential that we have does reflect some of our, let's say, inclinations. Hmm. It doesn't mean that we will act on them, but um, but, the, the, the... but but we do have them. So he would. It seems to me that he would say that it is sort of fixed in human nature to want, to desire power and to desire the minimization of threats. Yeah. But it is also part of human nature to act differently in different circumstances and generate stuff that basically he writes a really big book on yeah on emphasizing. I do think he is talking about the objective mechanisms of power though yeah and I and I, I think a lot of it may well be in response to uh, Christian moralizing because I mean like there's no way that Julius Caesar was going to forgive Vercingetorix yes. you know he was always going to kill him but it's entirely possible that if Julius Caesar had been a Christian maybe he would have forgiven Vercingetorix and then Vercingetorix would have gone back to Gaul and it would have been hell to pay all over again, right? So it's, I think Machiavelli is kind of acknowledging the fact that human nature has changed and that's why his book is so, con his books are so controversial in their own day yeah. because the, the, the morality of the people is different, but the mechanics of power remain the same. I don't know, I think it's a really interesting question of how different, not talking about power, although it's difficult to completely separate the two, but just human Human nature, the the the, the question of, um, you know, yeah. how different are we? How different are we to ancient people, and not just sort of the Romans of the first century mm. BC, but let's say um, the people of truly ancient Mesopotamia. Morally, um, we're very different. Right. So, one side of the argument is that we're um, we're almost like a different species. Yeah. And the other argument is we're pretty much exactly the same. <laughs> We're pretty much yeah, exactly yeah. the same. Uh, and there's I truth tend, in both. I tend towards... Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. There's actually... It's not one or the other exactly. I, yeah. I, I tend towards the latter one. I think we're almost... We're very, very, very similar in, in the broadest sense anyway. The idea that you, you don't want to be hurt unless you're like some weird masochist. Most people don't want to be hurt. They don't want misery. They want to protect their own families. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you'll, you'll have some sort of pursuit of... of of wealth and luxury and power, some to varying degrees, and all those sorts of things. Um, conversely, we're mostly the same, but but conversely, our decision making is very different. We we might well want the same things, but we make decisions that to any pre-Christian society would have just seemed bonkers. Uh, for example, you know, oh, fifty thousand people have arrived on, in Britain in boats. Well, that's fifty thousand new slaves for the Romans. That's great. That's great news, you know, because we're going to put you to work in the mines because we need miners. Uh, but of course, instead, we put them in four-star hotels and pay for them at our ex own expense. And the Romans would think we were bonkers. Well, yeah, I, I mean, a, a small like, clique of traitors did that on our behalf. But, but Most but it, normal people wouldn't want that. Would be. Sure, but it's not so morally repugnant that we do anything about it, right? Because, right, yeah. I mean, like in previous eras, they, they probably would have just lynched them, even if the government had done this, right? And obviously, I'm not advocating for that. But the point is, the the morality is just so night and day different that even though on a physical level and on, on a sort of 
human level. Yeah, we're very much the same. We've got families, we have property, and we want we you know we want to protect it. But the decisions we make are just informed by totally different ways of looking at the world. Yeah, yeah. it's funny you've mentioned the boat people. Where uh, just sprung to mind that even up to the early nineteenth century, if you landed in Japan <laughs> without permission, you were sort be of killed. killed on site, like on the beach. Yeah, in North there's no discussion of who you are or where you come from or yeah. what your intentions are. No. You're a foreigner. You're not allowed on this land. It's death. Immediate death. All I want is a 19th century Japanese border policy. <laughs> too much to ask for. But would you say that this um, comes back to what we said before be between the common urges and common inclinations and different actions? Because, And not only different actions, but also different ethical codes. Because it seems to me that the difference you are describing is a difference in moral beliefs. Yeah. And a difference in ethical codes. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily reflect a difference in a core human nature. Well, the, 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 yeah. I think the issue is that the, the core human nature, as Bo was saying, is the same. You know, we have yeah. fundamentally the same needs and drives yeah. as the, you know, the ancient Mesopotamians the, you know, and going back beyond. But the, the issue is that any, all of these things present a set of problems to which there are many different kinds of solutions. Yeah. And we have a particular set of solutions that don't solve anything, whereas, and uh, honestly, I, I suspect that Machiavelli is probably saying much the same thing about the Christians of his own day, saying, look, actually, the things you're saying are solutions are not really solutions, and that's probably why Machiavelli was considered some sort of heretic. Uh, so he's like, no, no, this is the solution. It's like, okay, but that's evil. Yeah. Well, I'd probably call it maybe culture, intone the word culture. That it's, <laughs> it's the culture of the 18th, 19th, early 19th century Japanese to be like that. It's our culture to just sort of ex somehow accept an invasion. Yeah. Um, yeah, so cultures can be, obviously, sort of obviously yeah. extremely different. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally um, And culture is obviously, or not always, and to varying degrees, can be very, very strong. It can be sort of the opposite of what your human instinct says. Everything in your gut mm. says, this thing in my culture is wrong. But you just go along, most yeah. people, most of the time, just go along with it. Or don't really have much choice other than to go along with it a lot of the time. I mean, they feel they don't. Modern um, Japan's a great example because it's the same people over the course of 500 years who have changed their culture radically to the point where, I mean, you know, a, a 16th century samurai would not recognize the anime consuming herbivore man of mm. the 21st century. He'd be like, right. well, you're not even a human to me. Mm. And yet you're mm. my great, 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 great grandson. So how mm. has this happened? You know? So it's just. You know, the, Japan's actually a really interesting example of how culture not only can change, but deeply inform the way the people themselves are. Mm. Now, I think we should focus on the text of Discourses on Livy mm. and start um, unpacking Machiavelli's greatest hits. Sure. So, um, first thing to say is that we are going to deal with book one on this symposium and with books two and three on, on the next one. Hmm. Now, Machiavelli is not a very systematic writer. It no. is not, he just has lots of snippets yeah. here and there. It's not aphoristic, but he has, uh, it, there isn't a clear plot in his text. It's more like he was have, uh, writing down notes. It's very immediate, right? Like yeah. he's, he's obviously reading Livy and be like, oh, look what's happened here. I'll make a note of that. Yeah. Look what's happened. Unlike Aristotle, who sits there and systematically lays everything out, or Nietzsche, who is very vague but has like a deeper point underneath it machiavelli's actually not trying to bamboozle you or anything like that he's actually shockingly direct 
Ni- I, I have a feeling that Nietzsche would love Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he'd probably, he'd probably be brilliant at Twitter, to be yeah. honest. I, uh, I think, yeah, uh, Machiavelli definitely just has this thought. Yeah. Like, oh, that's an interesting thought. I'll write sort of a mini essay on that, or I'll write yeah. a letter about that. Yeah. And then and then there's a collection of 30 or 40 of these letters, and that's book one. Mm. Yes. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Nietzsche. Um, for this, I saw a, a podcast about Nietzsche talking about Machiavelli, talking about Livy, talking about the Roman Republic. Yes. <laughs> so it was just, what, what, five layers there of yeah. people? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, it, and it's still really interesting. Nietzsche's account of Machiavelli's account of Livy's account of... Yeah, Roman Republic. Yeah, or even uh, the podcaster's review. Yes, yes, yes. Of, of, of Nietzsche's review, of yeah. Machiavelli's review, of Livy's review of Roman history. It wasn't yeah. called like the Nietzsche podcast or something. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, I I think I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's a good podcast. Worth listening to. So the way I think of these books is that we can def- try to impose an order on the chaos that Machiavelli leaves us. Mm. The way I prefer to think of it is that book one is about founding and structuring a republic. Book two is predominantly focused on the military affairs of a state. Mm. He talks both about kingdoms and republics. And book three is more about how to maintain a republic. And he constantly says that in order for a republic to survive, it constantly needs to revisit its uh, starting points. A sort of climate has to be rediscovered that resembles at least ideologically, the kind of rhetoric that was at place in the founding of that republic. Just a quick thing on um, the way Machiavelli writes. The, the fact that Machiavelli is so disordered uh, means you can essentially kind of pick and choose from his dictums when appropriate, when you need them, right? If you, know, if you come to a, a choice where you have to make a decision between this and this, you could just find an example of Machiavelli without needing to know the wider context in which that is actually situated. And Machiavelli will say, well, this will be the immediate res- response from this or from that. And, you know, you carry on as you carry on. So it, it is, there is actually some value in not having yeah. this kind of, you know, uh, holistic, structured, and, structured yeah. order. Yeah. There, there is an advantage to it. Yeah. It, it's it feels like a practical handbook, you know? Yes, but it is much more difficult to get into. Sure, it, sure. It, but it requires much more... Uh, but you, you, can, you can totally Effort. see some yeah. sort of 16th century ruler just reading through it at night being like, oh, yeah, I should do that. You know, <laughs> you, know like you, can, you can see that. It feels like a practical book. I don't think we've changed so much. Maybe, maybe now we can read and say he has a good idea here yeah. and there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's focus on book one. I think book one is about founding and structuring republics, and I think yeah. we should focus on this now. Um, what, where his Machiavellianism comes in is when it comes to Romulus. He, he does think that Romulus founded the kingdom, but he says that where the act accuses him, the result excuses him. So this is where his... He murdered his brother, but it's okay because it turned out well. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's the or Machiavellianism. Or it was necessary. Oh, there it was absolutely there. necessary. Yeah. He needed one man, yeah. is yes. what he says, doesn't he? Yes. And also that... Another thing that he says was that the issue is that it was for the greater good. So yeah. for uh, the discourses of, on Levy, Machiavellianism is not just for achieving any kind of purpose. Um, it's just for promoting the common good. Yeah. So it's the question of getting your hands dirty for promoting the common good. 
It's not getting your ha- hands dirty from promoting your own power. Mm. He's not Thrasymachus, as he is frequently portrayed to be. He's not Thrasymachus from the Re- Plato's Republic, mm. who is an immoralist, but he is someone who is giving us some you know, questionable issue, uh, advice about means. He's, he's like the hatchet man, right? Yeah. He's like, look, you know, I know you want this good thing, and I want you to have the good thing. You just have to do this terrible thing to get it. Yeah. But that's okay. Once you've done it, it's fine. Um, there's something I'd like to say here. Yeah, it was going to muddy the waters a little bit, but hopefully hopefully not too much. Um, although this is Machiavelli talking about Livy and Livy on the Republic, um, there's actually a lot of Aristotle yes. in it, um, and, and therefore Plato and Socrates. So Plato wrote the Republic, which is a... Socrates' discourse with people like Thrasymachus and stuff. So you mentioned that straight away. Um, and then Aristotle has got um, the politics, the politics of Aristotle, which builds on, in some various ways, on uh, Plato's Republic. Um, so all of that is, uh, uh, Machiavelli would obviously have read all of those and be completely yeah. aware of all of those and would have read lots of things of Cicero. Um, lots of people said that uh, in the Renaissance, uh, both Cicero and Aristotle were just sort of, for, for the intelligentsia anyway, yeah. were just um, absolutely de rigueur. You absolutely would have known them. They would have been informing nearly everything you were saying. So even though Machiavelli doesn't really, he does mention them, but it's not, it's not Machiavelli on Aristotle and Livy, but it actually is that, though, really. Um, because Livy is really just, he must say just, but he's more a historian. He's not particularly a philosopher. Yeah. He's the books of Livy, the ones that the early books of Livy are just a history. Yeah. Um, and Machiavelli's sort of reviewing it in various ways, but he's definitely drawing on Aristotle and also therefore Plato. So there's all that going on as well. Lots of the conceptions you get in Machiavelli about republics and about uh, about the nature of power and autocracies and princes, um, it makes so much more sense if you know what Plato and Aristotle said about princes and republics. You, you're, I think you're absolutely right here, and this is a really great point, because Aristotle is very much the background assumption to a lot of what Machiavelli is yeah, saying. It, for, like what, In fact, um, I think, I can't remember which chapter it is, but uh, when, when Aristotle believes that civic life is conceded, uh, conce- conceived upon on a on a bedrock of friendship, right? And Machiavelli just sits there and explains, no, no. Um, if you are this, you need to maintain friends at these levels and pit them against people who you're who are your enemies. And so he 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 talks specifically about no no. He he accepts the premise. Yeah, you've got civic life is all about who are your friends and who are not your friends. And he just explains how you need to balance that. And so you you I think you're absolutely right. He's totally conceded all of. Aristotle's presuppositions. He's not talking about like abstract conceptions of citizenship. He's talking about intimate human relations and how you can play one off against another and the, in, in ways that Aristotle implied would exist, but never explained himself. I don't think you married the waters. I think you illuminated yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. <laughs> really good stuff because these are there are lots of themes here that uh, I think we should talk about. And one is how Machiavelli, who wasn't very much prone to read <laughs> philosophers, I think he he, he didn't think of himself as a philosopher so much. He thought of himself more as a political theories, mm. theorist, I have the impression. 
but he did. Um, I, I I think he was aware of Plato and Aristotle, and especially Polybius. And it's good to see how Polybius was a was influenced by Aristotle and how Polybius basically influenced all Republican thought afterwards. Uh, Cicero and Machiavelli. And also, it's very important to talk about distinct kinds of republicanism. And we will definitely talk about the distinction between Cicero's republicanism and Machiavelli's republicanism. They're a bit different. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.